Welcome to Live Let Thrive, a podcast about the Airbnb life, the share economy, and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Micah and Steve. Hello, hello, hello. And welcome back to another exciting episode of Live Let Thrive. What is up, Micah, man? I am chilling, Stevie Stacks. Just got back from a little vacay, but I'm chilling. How you doing? Oh, good, man. Um, a little under the weather. Went, uh, my daughter passed a little, little sickness around the house, got it from school, I guess. And so we all got it. I was the last man standing and I finally got it. So, but I'm powering through. It's going to be my Michael Jordan flu game. So I'll be good. I'll be good. Um, this is episode, by the way, 225 of your favorite Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, Uber, Lyft, all that share economy fun stuff in the world coming at you from arlington and fort worth texas deuce and a quarter episode micah let's go to deuce and a quarter (laughs) and we have a special guest Ooh, a special guest who we got today stevie stacks who do we got you know we asked him for a bio and he said you guys know me you that's how you know he's a big time when he says you know me i ain't gotta put no bio anyways i'll make a bio for you he is the host of Airbnb Automated, a YouTube channel all about the STR, short-term rental industry, specifically the arbitrage model, with over 222,000 subscribers. He runs the Facebook page, the host of Airbnb Automated, with over 46,000 subscribers. He's a guru. He's a leader. He's a teacher, a business, a motivational speaker, a wealth of information in the STR world. He gives away tons of information for freaking free and he's fucking ripped and never misses leg day. He's the goat. He's motherfucking Sean Rakizic. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Rakizic. I got it close. I, I was like, man, I did. I was doing a good intro. And then, I, then I, there you go. It's hard. His name is hard to say, but his game is hard to play and he plays it well. Oh, that was really smooth, actually. It was really smooth. Good job. Thank you, man. Thanks for having yeah. me. How you doing, Sean? Doing really well, actually. Um, that's so cool to be on your Deuce and a Quarter. Um, deuce and a Quarter. <laughs> inaugural Deuce and a Quarter podcast. Looks like you're in outer space. There's like a champagne supernova behind you. Oh, I, I painted that. Um, uh, it was like cool. it. Yeah. Cool. And he's an artist too, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so if you haven't heard of Sean, you've been living in a cave. He's the goat. He's the, the, the short-term rental goat, the, the arbitrage guy. And we're so happy to have you on the show to drop some knowledge. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I, w- I guess real quick, just um, a brief synopsis of how you started in this world. I mean, we, we all kind of know it, but yeah, for the people that. You know, and know. I said you guys know me because you're my friends. I didn't mean to like be all try to like. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know, we're just messing with you. <laughs> like you guys. Um, so uh, when I started my Airbnb business, it was my third significant business. At the time, I was running uh, a newspaper media consultancy. Basically, newspapers are dying. They have been for a while. And I was working with the Houston Chronicle, helping them reach millennials. And so I was hiring sales guys and relocating them to Houston. And I had a bunch of apartments in a high rise. And then they moved out, relocated to other markets as we expanded. And then all of a sudden, I had like three empty apartments that I was paying rent on. So I was like, you know, I'm going to put these on Airbnb. And that's going to be the way I'm going to cover my rent. That was 2014. And that's how I got started. It's very fascinating. I, I've seen some of your videos on how you got your start. And I, I, what was pretty cool about, like you said, you were bringing in people to Houston, you know, to work for you and putting them in, in year-long leases. And even though they were only, you were only signing them for a few months, you were just hoping that they would stay. 
<laughs> so it was yeah. like a, it was like a like a happy uh, happy accident, whatever they say, um, a happy mistake because you were stuck with these uh, empty un- empty units you were paying for, and then so what what got you to decide to say hey, I'm going to try this Airbnb thing? So the Airbnb thing was just because it was the nearest like reach. I tried to put like an executive in one of my apartments for like a month to month corporate housing, and I just failed at it. So. Airbnb at the time was really the lowest barrier to entry to get that thing full without knowing what you're doing because knowing how to do corporate housing still requires a little skill. So um, it was really just low-hanging fruit, and then that was it. I didn't take it seriously, though, for a couple of years. I had my three apartments with people doing Airbnb. I was making money, but I was still thinking that my other business was going to be like my big thing. Mm. And then uh, the year that Houston hosted the Super Bowl where the Falcons were up like 21 to nothing in the first quarter, remember that? <laughs> um, that was the year that I knew I was going to do like Airbnb uh, because there's going to be so much money in the game. So I picked up like six more apartments. I had 10 by that February and made like 15 grand in a weekend net profit. And I'm like, all right, this is it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So 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 you were doing it were you under the under the radar at the time. You weren't telling the complex you were doing it. Well, here's the thing. At the time, 2014, there was no lease language that you could not list, list on lodging websites, nothing like that, right? Mm. And since my leases were under my LLC, there was actually a very fine loophole at the time where the only thing that prevented the business maybe was a no subletting clause. But since my LLC did not have a declared occupant on my LLCs, anybody who's staying in the occupant, it wasn't a sublease. Because the LLC is almost like a shell occupant and the human inside was the true occupant. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't technically subletting um, by many interpretations of contract law. So for two or three years, like I just told people I'm a company and besides some lease, I'm going to put some people in here and I didn't have to say Airbnb or not. And every time a leasing agent called me and said, you can't do this, I'm like, well, actually, let me educate you on the leases. <laughs> um, and then like 2000 end of 2017 we started to see like anti-airbnb language 2018 we started to see anti-airbnb languages in the texas taa lease okay now are you still picking up arbitrage units and are you and then not only are you picking them up like with rents going up how are you combating that to make yourself still viable in the airbnb space rents aren't going up rents are coming back down again actually um (laughs) finally finally but over the last four months, everything went up. Everything was nuts. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we just picked up 55 doors in Houston over the last couple of months. Uh, we picked up, we're picking up 20 in Austin. Right now we're picking up 20 in Waco. We're working on a deal here in Dallas for, for something in the teens. Mm-hmm. I can't say exactly how many. And we got a deal in Philadelphia we're working on too. So um, yeah, we're picking up them like they're going out of style because landlords are finally calling us back and they're giving us free rent, which is like a big part of our strategy. Mm-hmm. Now, I see you're picking them up in Houston, and Houston has been like, if you ever go into like a Houston group, everyone's like throwing furniture out the window, let's get the hell out of here. So what are you doing to make sure you're still viable in that market? We're actually picking up stuff in the suburbs. We're not doing interloop properties yet. Um, give us six more months a year as everybody dies. We'll come back in and you know pick up from everyone else's ashes. But we're, we're out of loop right now. Makes sense. Got it. Okay. That was there a period of time where you, where you weren't picking up as many units. You took took a break, I guess. Well, kind of. We, we went from 10 units at the Super Bowl to 103 on New Year's Day of 2020. We had 103. Then mm. COVID hit, right? Mm. We broke like we, we broke that growth trend and ended up downsizing to like 65 doors. Then came back up over 100. And we were trying to grow these last six months, last year. But with the rental market going kind of nuts, 
we ended up in a spot where we we landlords just weren't calling us back because there's a false sense of confidence in the market. So people are like, oh, we don't need you. But now they're calling us back. So all the, the hundred doors we're picking up right now, we would have been nice to pick them up over the course of a year, but I guess we're gonna take them in five months, you know, just because of time. Hmm. It's a beautiful thing, man. Um, so the free rent strategy, you gotta you gotta go over that because a lot of people get into the space, but then a lot of them don't ask for the free rent and don't, or they just say no, or they don't know how to get the free rent. How do you, how do you do that? How do I get free rent? Yeah. <laughs> Buy the course. That. Yeah, I'll give, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you more, a simplified answer, I guess, because it's, I've got a whole sales system and the free rent part comes like after we've already got approved for the building and we're like negotiating some finer details, but I'll give you more conceptual answer. A lot of people don't go for free rent because people are so kind of bent out of shape, hoping that they can get their opportunity. Like, I really want to get an Airbnb, right? So they're asking landlords like with their hands out like this, like like Oliver Twist, like, can we, I please have a lease, right? And there's such a imbalance in the power exchange between a landlord and the tenant in that way. If you want a landlord to say yes to things that you offer, you have to know your own value. When you go to, hey, I'm going to solve your occupancy problems. I'm going to fix your issue, which is that, you know, you're looking at, you know, the next six months to a, a year, you know, the market's going to be kind of crazy. And if you've got a multifamily building that doesn't have 90% occupancy right now, you probably not look at a 90% occupancy for the next year. It's like an argument you can make. So you say, hey, I'm going to get five doors or I'm going to get 10 doors from your building. But in exchange, I want six weeks or eight weeks of rent. I've got some negotiation, negotiation, negotiating techniques um, where we'll like, we'll give them a concession, something that would already been baked into the deal, but they don't know about yet. So we'll, hey, tell, we'll do this for you. Give us our six weeks or eight weeks of rent. There's a long answer to the question, which uh, I don't think we have that much time because the way that I approach pitching landlords is like a sales system. And we start by getting the landlord to agree to the, to the idea and concept, right? We're pitching the idea of short-term rentals first. And we, we get them to agree, go through the lease application and kind of get to the end of the sale before we start to ask for certain things. But the whole premise of our sale is based on the value that we provide. And that, this is where I think a lot of people go wrong is when somebody's getting into the short-term rental space, they're so excited to get into the short-term rental space that what they're looking for is just any landlord to tell them yes. So they're coming to landlords with this really weak position going, hey, please, can you give me a property? I would love to have a property. And then the landlord's like, yes or no. And then lots of landlords, when they see that kind of approach, are like, yes, but I'm gonna charge you more rent, right? Because the person who typically tends to get into Airbnb without any backstory, without any history or experience, uh, they don't know their own value. They don't know what they're really providing to the landlord. So the, the only real difference to a normal lease you get is a landlord trying to take advantage of this new Airbnb host. So instead, if you know the value that you offer to a landlord, like the fact that um, you can give them a three-year long lease where in a turnover for three years, or um, there's other aspects of how we run our businesses that might actually be better than a regular tenant. When you approach a landlord where, where you know your position of value, you can start to negotiate for things in return. And especially in this market right now, if a multifamily building you know, is 85% occupied, they're already in a tough spot. And as the market starts to pull back, owners aren't going to be confident that they're getting over 90% occupied in the next year. So you can really go to multifamily and say, hey, I'll take five or I'll take 10 doors from you. Um, but in exchange, I want some free rent because what I'm doing is I'm giving you certainty that you're going to hit your occupancy metrics over the next year. And that's a that's a big factor. Definitely is because, I mean, hey, if they ain't got the occupancy, they can't go get more. You know, I love that. Now, with this strategy, are you only doing apartments because you can, you have the advantage of, hey, I'll give you this much occupancy. So are you only doing apartments or do you do houses as well? We have a preference in our urban areas to do studio apartments. That's our preference because we can do 30 in the same building. We like that. Um, certain markets like Philadelphia, all the apartments in Center City Rittenhouse, they're taken. 
right? So um, like Saunders, like Ripton. So we do a lot of townhomes in Philadelphia market. Uh, we do some houses in Houston. Um, Austin's all apartments. Dallas is mostly all apartments. And even in Dallas, we had three bedroom apartments for a few years at one building and they're just making so much money. So we typically like studios or three bedrooms, but we still prefer them to be apartments because we can pick up a lot in the same building. If we have to, as part of our growth strategy, pick up houses, we'll do it. Um, we're picking up houses now, but we're actually doing co-hosting for those. So we've got 150 arbitrage and now we're up to like three co-hosting properties and we've got 10 more that we're negotiating right now. So we have houses, but we're going to be not arbitraging. Mm, now, okay. Now on your Dallas, cause you said you're picking up more in Dallas. Are the new regulations going to affect your Dallas units or are you just doing it like where they have to be five units or more commercial? How does that affect you? So it looks like most of our properties are going to be fine. Yeah. If, if the whole thing is, has to be five units or more, great. If it's even if multifamily and residential neighborhoods still can't be done, then it will affect one of our buildings for sure. Um, but all of our buildings are big, big buildings. None of our properties are four unit or less. So we should be free and clear on that. Gotcha. Now, going back to one one thing you said, uh, you said it's either studio to you, to you guys, either studios or three bedrooms. You didn't say, or you said one bedrooms or, or you jumped to three. You didn't say two bedrooms. Why not two bedrooms? Well, we actually jumped one bedrooms too, if we can avoid them. Um, oh, wow. Well, the reason why, so one bedrooms effectively is a studio, but it costs about a thousand dollars more to furnish. And the photos don't come out as cool a lot of times because studios have this more open floor plan, which gives you more room to do cool stuff, right? So studios can look cooler for cheaper and give you the same occupancy, which means they're going to be more profitable. Mm. Two bedrooms are kind of stuck in the middle, right? They can sleep seven or eight people at best, at best. And you're not getting into the group sizes enough that allow you to get that upsized revenue. That makes sense. But for the increase of rent between a two-bedroom and a three-bedroom, you'll make a lot more money. Or four-bedroom, you make a lot more money. But the increase in rent between a one-bedroom and a two doesn't give you like an upsized revenue return. So you can either go groups as a strategy or you can compete on price as a strategy. So studios, we do to compete on price. And three-bedrooms are larger, we do to start to access the, the group like high-margin properties. <laughs> I love that, man. That's cool. <laughs> no, no, I noticed another thing I noticed you said with the two bedrooms, they're in the middle. Have you avoided those? Cause you've seen they're kind of in competition with like the three bedroom houses. Have you seen anything, anything like that? When we get offered two bedrooms, we try to negotiate their prices down to materially the same as one bedroom properties. And if we can get the rent down in our negotiation, kind of like how we try to negotiate for free rent, we'll tell them, Hey, two bedrooms are cool, but not at that price point. We'll take them at this price. If we can get the rent down, we'll take them, but we won't take them at face value nearly ever. Wow. Now that, that that's next level. I hope y'all took notes on that because that's one hell of a gym. Okay. How is how was being homeless? How did that help your business? Um, I was actually just talking to somebody about this today. Um, I tried to share a truism earlier, which is, you know, when it's right there, you know, they they're afraid that maybe they won't succeed. And if they run into an obstacle big enough, they might just give up. Like Airbnb regulations, like in Dallas, if there's regulations where you have to get a permit or something like that, some people might just give up trying, right? But I had to correct my own truism because I'm like, well, that actually didn't apply to me because I, I was homeless when I started my first, nothing was going to stop. So if I wasn't homeless, I probably wouldn't have started my first successful business. Nice, nice. So being homeless, you started from the bottom. You started from the bottom. Now you're here, and um, and you and we're here, and and you and you are. You made it. You know, moved on up. You're up at the top. So so, 
I know you're not one of those flashy gurus with the with the Mercedes. I mean Mercedes this, with the with the um you know high end cars. Um what's it called? You know, the bikini models all over you, stuff like that. But um you do have a you do have a pretty cool pad, man. We 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 got to hang out at your pad. Uh Julie George and the gang showed up and came to town and we had a good time, man. So so why why was it important for you to get like a, a pimped out penthouse in down in downtown Dallas with a million dollar view? Well, I actually decided that I needed to show some form of journey with my right because people are watching and you know there's a lot of naysayers and there's a lot of people who really want to show that it's valid and there's an element of showing that you're successful that allows to help people understand that it actually will work, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I. I didn't want to do it in a cliche way. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to move into a place that I like. I can shoot YouTube videos, a place that says that the background says, yeah, he's doing, he's doing good. Right. Um, so that's why I got the place. Um, and then after I moved in, I'm like, oh, I can peer space this too. This will be sick. Um, so that was like an off, like off topic thing. Um, but yeah, I, I did it because I figured it'd be a place that I can be a creator, do my thing, work from home passively show that i'm i'm moving up in the world without having to stand in front of a car you know mm -hmm. so i figured that'd be that it'd be the least cliche least pushy way to say hey this now you did mention peer space so you, so you are allowed to peer space your your place actually no i just got two lease violations back to back a year and a half later i've been here for a year and a half and now they just gave me two lease violations because somebody threw a crazy party and oh, um shit. yeah it's actually my assistant's this is what happens when you do business with friends, probably. My my assistant's fraternity brother connection through a party here. And it just went nuts, I guess. So Oh no. Yeah, I've been now we're now we're reworking this, right? I don't think they wanted to give me any trouble because you know I'm, I'm the most expensive unit in the building. They don't want to like drop me for that. Peer space that have had people here three or four days a month for two hours at a time. So it's almost like very little load. So I did the ask for forgiveness, not permission thing, but now I think it's starting to become a point of contention. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I can imagine. See, no, I didn't even think partiers would go to peer space, but I mean, most it's someone you know, it's a friend, so I understand it. Okay. Oh no, like my best paying peer space was a kid's graduation party. He graduated with a master's in some form of uh, science and engineering something mm -hmm. out of SMU, and they paid four grand for the evening to rent my place. You can't beat that. And they were out before midnight, bro. And that, like, you can't beat that. So, yeah. So, like, people do use pure space for gatherings. I've had a lot of wedding proposals. Um, I've had a lot of music videos. I had a mariachi band last week come in. That was cool. Guy that used to perform with uh, Prince just shot here one day. Like, really cool stuff. Meeting some really cool people. That is dope. Yeah, yeah. That, that those are connections. There are valuable connections right there. Oh, I got that guy's phone number for sure. I made that connection. So, <laughs> wasn't gonna miss it. Now, so it's big, yeah, become a networking tool for you. Mm -hmm, for sure. So it sounds like you've expanded outside of Airbnb, gone into peer space. Now, for your short-term rental side, have you guys also gone off Airbnb, such as like Verbo, Booking.com? Are you just only on Airbnb right now? Oh, we're we're absolutely on Verbo. Um, and the next move, of course, is direct bookings, Expedia, stuff like that. For sure. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And what made you expand? Well, we should have done it four years ago. Right, um, Airbnb kind of pushing hosts around is probably why we were super naive um, until we got to 100 properties. And yeah, so my YouTube channel is called Airbnb Automated. So I also just stuck to Airbnb as part of my brand. Like you can grow an Airbnb. Mm -hmm. That's part of my problem. 
But when Airbnb did the whole COVID thing and canceled everybody's stuff, um, we kind of woke up. That was the thing. Um, and so that's when we started pushing into the RBO or Verbo now. Um, but direct bookings is the next arc. Everybody should be doing direct bookings. So no, real quick, real quick, before we get into direct bookings, I know that's going to be, that's a hot topic right there. Um, you did, you did, um, you did go, go pretty scorched earth on Airbnb whenever they did that, um, COVID thing and they, and they canceled everybody's bookings. Right. So, so what came out of that? Cause I thought, I thought Airbnb, um, started sending you some, some legal stuff for, for talking so much shit. Uh, well, they actually just asked me to take the video down, but since the video was founded on actual data, they couldn't force it down. Cause it wouldn't like, there's no Bible there. Um, they just asked me politely to take it down. I'm like, no, you got to stay accountable. The brand protection team asked me to not use the word Airbnb in my YouTube name. So now it's Sean Rocky Jeech. It's not Airbnb automated anymore, but I still show up in the Airbnb automated search tag. That's like my, still my biggest search tag on YouTube. That's the only thing they've been, that that's the only thing that they've done since going, like, since going public that, you know, has been an issue. So, so they made you, wow. So they sent the legal team to make you take that down. Brand protection team. And uh, they're sending notices to people who have BNB or Airbnb in their names for their hospitality businesses. Not just me. Okay. Wow. Happy you said that. All right. <laughs> Watch out. I know. Oh, geez. Uh, now, okay. Now for someone who's looking to get into arbitraging, because, you know, things are going crazy. Prices and rents are coming back down. Um, what advice did you have for someone who's like, looking, Hey, I just want to get in. I want to get 10 units. What advice would you have for them? Um, a lot of people deliberate. So the first thing you can do that doesn't require any skill is start an LLC. The older your LLC, the better. Um, next is sales training, product knowledge, understand how this industry works and how a landlord like might actually need your help. Um, practice sales. And then do your market research while you're practicing sales and your LLC is getting older. There's a lot of preparation, right? Good preparation will lead to getting 10 doors. Um, that's probably my main advice. I got YouTube videos and sales techniques. I, I'll probably just direct them to those as well um, on sales techniques for our specific industry. Um, but I think what a lot of people do is they try to do research and try to decide if they're going to get in the industry. And then they start an LLC two or three months later. But mm -hmm. they should start it today. And then go through all the, the tedious stuff because then that LLC could actually get approved for a lease for six months down the road, no trouble. But that's where a lot of people get snagged up. So well, why is it so important to put all your properties into an LLC? Well, it's this is super hypothetical, but let's say a landlord says, cool, right? And then four months later, let's say a bad party happens or something happens where the landlord wants to change their mind. Well, now the landlord's like, you need to leave. And then you're like, well, no, we got a lease. He'll like, I'll evict you. And it's going to go on your personal eviction record if I evict you. That's a really high risk situation, right? You don't have an eviction on your record. So forming through an LLC gives you protection um, where two businesses are now you know, pushing back at each other. And you don't have to worry about it tagging you in, in, in eviction court if something ever did wrong, um, did go wrong. And there's another thing that we could talk for a long time on, but I learned from my attorneys in Philadelphia. There's something called course of dealing in the uniform commercial code it's a business legal term. And um, even if you don't have a contract with another company and you start doing business with another company and you guys are doing things like all, like if you're doing things one way and you start to like get into a rhythm with the company and then they try to change that on you and get aggressive, you can defend yourself in accordance to course of dealing. If you can prove course of dealing, it's you don't even need to have a contract, like arguably. Mm. It's not an easy defense, but a, a, an attorney could take it. 
Have you had to use attorneys? Have you ever been kicked out of places and had to use attorneys? Um, I've had a lot of weird legal stuff in Philadelphia because people are kind of shady. Um, part of a settlement agreement, um, I cannot get, I can't go into detail. Um, I'm quite happy with the settlement agreement, but there's going to be a, a, like a confidentiality clause signed in that. So, um, but I, and all I can say, it was worth paying them, all three of them. It was worth it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know how much more I could say without them coming. So, so yeah, so that's another, that's another thing. Um, the Phillies are trying hard to ban short-term rentals. Uh, how's that fight going right now? They keep kicking the date down the road. They kicked it to January 3rd. So now January 3rd, you have to be registered. But with the way that they're doing it, it's likely that they're going to kick it back again. And the moment that they kick it back again would be the moment I tell everybody, sure, jump into Philadelphia. They just can't, they can't get their stuff together. So now you have a big presence in the space. You know, you're, you're, what'd you say? You're niche famous. That's what you said on one of your videos. It's pretty cool. Uh, so how are you using that uh, notoriety, I guess, to help in the fight against uh, cities, major cities getting banned? I'm not the person for it. I can spread awareness, but I can't show up at a meeting and go, hey, guys, fight for the little guy, because I'm not the little guy, right? Mm. My presence at a town hall, probably gonna be, but I can do PSAs. We did a video where my, my friend, Sean Ray, the real estate agent here, he's like, Sean, can you meet with this person from city council? Can we do a like a like a... A, like a blip on your YouTube. And I did that. I'm going to work with um, Theron from uh, Theron Lewis. He does uh, not, like nonprofit. Sharing and, Dallas. Yeah. Uh, no, he's, uh, he's from Detroit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So um, I'm going to work with him. We're probably going to do a state of the market on some cities that are trying to ban and give everybody kind of like some resources on the YouTube channel. But that's about as much as I can do. I can't act like I can't act like I speak for the people anymore because I'm just too big. Yeah, yeah, he's he's uh we're, he's good buddies of ours. He's uh right now he's doing the sharingdallas.org, which you know you can people cool. can donate to, and they're doing the fight to keep it from getting banned in Dallas. So he uh, he okay. he helps a, a lot yeah, of. We've got a we've got a meeting things. lined up, so I've yet to get debriefed on all the like stuff. So. Yeah, he's the man. He's the man. Super cool. the, the superhero. <laughs> yeah, he's super cool. He's super cool. Oh yeah, and I'm happy he's and working with Dallas to get everything straightened out too, and I'm happy he's doing it in Philly as well. Yeah. So you had a, you had a rough uh, a rough upbringing, right? So I I don't want to go into it, but like, are there any good habits that came out of some you know having a rough upbringing that kind of helped you turn this into a the massive business that it is? And there are are there any lingering bad habits that you got to be aware of? Oh, dude, dude. Um, I used to say that everything uh like just rolled off my back like Teflon. I think my childhood made me like indestructible in a lot of ways. Um, but I was also deeply validation seeking, right? So um, I would work really hard for people just to get a pat on the back. And I think that taught me work ethic because the, I mean, I needed to experience work ethic for that to happen. So that came through with that. So my validation seeking behavior made me extremely resourceful. Um, but now I think there are, there are gonna be aspects of how I lead people that need to change because how I got here and why I got here was for probably the wrong reasons. And so now I've got to go through like a little bit of an existential tunnel, um, probably to hit my next phase of like growth leadership. Mm, love that. Yeah. And how how has Burning Man helped all that? Uh, well, Burning Man wasn't the only thing, but uh, I started traveling about a year ago and taking a lot of time off. When I first retired-ish, you know, I did my retirement thing a year ago, I had like this crisis of purpose because no one needed me. And that was really weird, right? To have no one need you. 
Um, then I got used to that, started to feel really free in my travels, started to really loosen up, chill out. Um, I, I backed off the companies completely and I wasn't worried about it anymore. Um, Burning Man was a point where I showed up somewhere that money didn't matter. That was cool. One of the very first situations I've been in where money just didn't matter because you couldn't spend any. And I realized I, I hide in productivity. Like obviously I was in a new environment, new people. And I spent like three or four days just hanging out in my camp cooking for people because I just didn't know what to do with my time. While everybody's out doing Burning Man stuff, I'm at my camp cooking and just trying to be helpful. And I realized I sink into this behavior of trying to see that's why I probably am so active on YouTube. Um, and I realized that I need to be more, uh, I need to be more brave, socially speaking. I'm kind of an introvert. So that's something I learned at Burning Man. I don't think it applies to my business, but it's been helpful for me. Dude, I'm 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 a major introvert, right? And that is one thing that I've I, I went to a conference this weekend, and that's one thing I'm really learning to break out of is my introvertedness. Because I went to a conference this week. Say that again. You went this week? Did you go to Joe Dispenza? No, 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 no. I went to uh Thatch Wynn. Uh he's one of my mentors. Okay. I went to his conference and uh he he really it was like really about breaking through, you know, what, what's holding you back. And that does one thing that really break, I, I, I struggle with like all my goals behind me. I have be a better communicator because I, I it affects my communication skills. So I'm um, a man. I know how it is being an introvert, man. Feel that. Feel that. What was that? I said, I feel that. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Not my next question for you is this is the ultimate question because I know you're hundred percent big on arbitrage and do you ever plan on buying? And if so, when? Um, I will buy a fat multifamily building when I can pry it out of the weeping hands of an investor who made a big mistake. Ooh, I like that. Man, so you, you want to go straight into multifamily. What size? You don't care, just multifamily? 100 unit plus, probably. Mm. Wow. And you, and you don't want to do it with any syndicators, just 100% mm. arbitrage cash. I might play with some syndications, but I'm not going to call that buying. And my reason for syndicating would be more of a networking move than an investment. Ooh, man, this guy's tough. I like that. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, one thing, one hot topic also in the industry is um, short-term rental insurance. Do you use short-term rental insurance? If so, which ones do you use? Um, what's really funny is I'll recommend to people to use either proper or um, what's that other one? Super that, Hog. Super hog is good. Yeah. So I'll, I'll recommend, but I don't because all of our units are studios and Airbnb's air cover is good enough that we can get paid for $200, $500, $2,000 claims, you know, pretty simply the, the total amount of damage that can be done to any one unit is pretty low when I have studio apartments. So it's really not worth spending a premium on these little tiny units. And it's a streamline that way. Um, if we did start doing bigger houses, um, yeah, we probably we probably would use proper super hog or something like that if we had like a four bedroom, five bedroom house that was like luxury and the lot like the risk of loss was greater. Like if we could take a twenty five thousand dollar loss on furniture, like somebody just totals all of our furniture and it would exceed twenty five grand. At that point, I probably would get an insurance. Hmm, that's a good. It's funny you say that because we we just had a conversation in our uh, mastermind. Like, hey, is it worth it even having super hog on you know places that air that you're doing Airbnb because air cover could should cover it? That that basically answered my question. <laughs> well, you know, insurance companies are are, are a casino, right? Yeah. What they do is they're they're like a bookmaker, right? So they're they're making a spread and they're keeping what's in the middle. So when you're big enough, not paying premiums on 200 units, you save all those premiums. If you put all that money into hiding and then cashed it in when you did have an event, 
you're likely going to survive it. The only thing is, is if like you have a, if you have a problem, like your first four months or six months of being a big company, it could be a big expense that puts you down. And that'd be the only reason why people bring insurance in is because yeah, even though you're losing a little bit of topside, it still prevents you from the black swan event, you know? So if you have a, if you have a risk of ruin that has to be considered, then insurance is safe. Mm, I like that. Oh, that, that's a good point right there. I just, uh, off topic, I just got rid of all my um, home warranties for all my houses that I own. Cause they don't, they, they stop uh, uh, approving anything. So I was yeah. like, why am I paying monthly fees for this crap? If you deny every single claim that I throw at you, so I'm just going to go yeah. at it. Just make a pile of money to use when something goes wrong. I have my handyman in place and, and go from there. Yeah, you guys can do a self-insurance policy too. They were originally designed for um, uh, crops for farmers, but you can put $2, uh, $2 million a year away tax-free um, into your own insurance policy. What? Are you well? So um, I've got a guy named Brooks. You want to set up a self insurance thing? I got you. It has nothing to do with life insurance, so um, it's like it's like it's like a four hundred one k in steroids or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. We definitely have to. You're gonna to have to definitely send us that information. <laughs> yeah, I'll just introduce you to the guy. He's out doing weird stuff. He's traveling, but when he's back, I'll put you in touch with him. So, what made you want to go into into teaching this? And and, and you have this huge following on on YouTube and of course Facebook. So, uh, what made you want to go into it? And how is how is teaching other people how to do this actually helped your own business? Well, um, I wanted to prove something back then. I only had ten doors. I wanted to prove that what I did was valid. The whole validation seeking behavior. Um, but then I fell in love with the concept of making videos and creating. There's an artistic side, and I was I mean, you know, I'm an art kid, so um, I fell in love with the process of creating videos. And the one thing I was good at was Airbnb. So I was creating videos on the topic. Now holding myself accountable was probably the big thing. That's how it really helped me, held me accountable. Um, Cause like I'm going to grow my business on YouTube and then I had to. So it's cool to have an accountability partner, like the anonymous world that I was you know, teaching to. But also gave me a chance to trial and error some stuff. Cause if I didn't have a YouTube channel, I probably wouldn't have tried things just to find out if it would work. Um, cause I wanted to try stuff and come back to YouTube and say if it worked or not. So I was more innovative and more risk-taking, I think, because of the YouTube channel. Well, what was something in all this that, oh, Micah, you look like you were going to ask something about the YouTube. I'm not going to say, ask anything. I'm just going to make a comment to any of the listeners. What he just said is actually really, really key because he said he used his YouTube channel to hold him accountable because he has to produce the, produce the YouTube content. So in order to do that and for it to be effective and genuine content, he has to go and do the work. That's actually the same with this podcast. That's the re only reason it's really been running this long. It's because, well, damn, if we're going to be talking about short-term rentals, corporate housing, Airbnb, we have to do it. And so like, look at Steve. I mean, you just ramped up your business, you know, to, with the management side. So the people that are out there that want to, you know, grow their business, that's actually a really great thing you just said is put it out there on Instagram that you, what you do and people will follow you. And then for you to hold yourself accountable, keep pushing it out there. You know, I, I love that. That's a really good thing for any people or affluencing influencers or whatever you want to be. Well, if you think about it, right, the whole concept of do or die, right? If it's do or die, you're going to do, but with how prevalent social media is, it's like do or death of your reputation for being the person that didn't do what they said they were going to do. So it's like, in a way it's like a social do or die. But put Yeah. And, and one, just one more thing. And one thing that I noticed, like me and you are real big on, and I know you've talked about it and I've talked about it, is these random people, you know, with the sponsored ads on Instagram selling courses and things. That's, you know, 
if they haven't found someone who's genuine, you know, who's putting out the free content, I'm happy you always bring that up. You know, like quit just going to these random gurus who just paid for an ad space and now they're all over and now they're making all this money and ripping people off. So hold yourself accountable. Keep posting genuine content to anyone out there. This is really good stuff. But yeah, go ahead, Steve. My bad. Yeah, the cappers, that's what um, Clubhouse is for. Uh, <laughs> I, I was so speaking of keeping yourself accountable holding yourself accountable and using the youtube channel to, to do that what are what is like some one or some of the biggest like it was like the great idea at the time you wanted to try it and and, it, and you tried it and it was the biggest failure is the biggest flop and i mean can you speak towards that because i mean I'll, I'll you know a lot of people like to talk about their successes what was one of the biggest bad ideas that you had you know what's really funny is a lot of times things work people just don't try right um a lot of ideas work people just don't try um what did we fail at did we completely screw something up i think probably a compensation style we probably try to like run a compensation package that didn't work for a certain position um so like for example speaking of compensation package because like cleaners you have them on an hourly right you pay them hourly yeah yeah it works so that's most people paying by the job so why how how did you get that to work well, it works because if somebody needs to do extra work, they're staying extra time, they can pay for their extra time. There's no longer resentment when somebody throws a party or there's deep cleaning that um, there's no resentment that they have to be thoroughly paid for it. And also when you pay people by the hour and you have a good training system, like our housekeepers aren't housekeepers, right? Our housekeepers are from McDonald's. Our housekeepers are baggers at a grocery store. Our housekeepers are people who used to be a babysitter. And they're getting, they're taking a job at a race. When we pay them twelve to fourteen dollars an hour, it's two to three dollars more per hour than they're used to making. So they're super happy to work for fourteen dollars an hour. No experience necessary. We train them in our our like franchise housekeeping system, and they're like, "This is so cool. I'm making so much more money." So we have their loyalty at fourteen, where other people are like, "Oh, you're underpaying your housekeepers." Yeah, if we hired a housekeeper with five years experience in the game and we pay them fourteen an hour, they wouldn't take the job because they know they can make thirty an hour. We're not hiring housekeepers. Right? We're training people to become housekeepers and to work for 30 an hour. Like, you know, the moment they get done with our training program, they could go take double pay somewhere else. But they're loyal to us because they don't know that yet. And hopefully by the time that they know that there's an industry, they're loyal to our company for other reasons, not just the compensation. Right. Mm. So, yeah, there's an element there. Human resources, man. <laughs> this is beautiful, man. So you have your own in-house cleaning company? Everything is in-house. We've got like 30 housekeepers. Damn. That's smart, man. That's the way to do it. You want to own every piece of value delivery in your business and every piece of value creation in your business. You don't want anybody else doing your customer service. You don't want anybody else doing your housekeeping. You don't want anybody else doing your maintenance or your moving or your staging. You want all of it to be in-house. Now, when you're too small, you're going to have an interior designer do your interior design until you're a big boy, right? But that's an example of like, you kind of have to work with people when you're tiny. But when you get big, you can own it all. We've got a director of real estate that does all of our door negotiation, right? We pay him a set. Our doors we pulled out are all because of him. And if we paid somebody else as a salesperson, the cost for those hundred doors would have been astronomical. You know? Jeez, man, that 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 that's that's powerful, man. Instead of and I remember I was talking to a guy this weekend. He he makes he runs like a four million dollar a year wholesaling business. And they were like, Well, how does you do it? Do it? You know, when you train these people up, why don't they leave? He goes, Well, I don't he said exactly what you said. Like, I don't go get the guy who's 
who's a sales guy, I teach him sales. I bring him in house and I teach him sales. That's the same way you should got to run your, your cleaning business. You got to bring that in house. And I was telling Steve about that. I'm like, dude, we have enough units. We can start our own cleaning company. We can bring everything in house. I'm happy you did that. That, that is awesome, man. I hope people are taking notes. That's huge. Yeah. It's probably things about staying competitive right now. Yeah. And do you utilize virtual assistants? We have assistants that we have remote workers, but they're all United States based just for culture and quality purposes. <laughs> and why did you go that route instead of paying someone five bucks an hour in the Philippines? or four Because bucks? this is hospitality and guest experience is super important. And the last thing I want is somebody to get offended that they're having a hard time checking into a property or they're like hot water heater isn't working and they're talking to somebody in Polynesia or something. And then they get offended. We want somebody who's nearby, you know? Just for just for those high risk situations. Interesting. And and how do you how do you find good? Uh, um, I guess there's still virtual, um, you know, remote workers. How do you find good employees to do that job? So, for all positions, no matter what you hire for, the most expensive positions you hire are going to be when you run a job ad, cold ad, looking for people you, like you don't know. Most of our remote workers come from referrals. We'll have housekeepers that are good, a manager that we hired that's good. And when you have good workers, you incentivize them to refer people into your company, and those will be your best and cheapest hires. So all of our remote workers are internal referrals. Mm. Nice. And uh, what about maintenance people? Um, depending on the area, like Austin, we still only have 11 properties. Um, the Fort Worth, we have like maybe 15. And apartment complexes do so much maintenance that we don't really need of maintenance work but in dallas we have like a a pseudo full-time maintenance guy that does other stuff when like when he's not busy but um we will contract out somebody else piece by piece in other cities where we don't have a big enough presence so but we do have one maintenance guy in dallas that will also um he'll refresh listings he'll move in new furniture pull out bad furniture we, we keep him busy with other non-maintenance no, no, in, in situ, I'm happy you brought up the maintenance thing. In situations where like the management just goes bad, right? What, what do you put something in your lease to like, hey, if this management team slacks, you know, I get a concession because I know you're real big on concessions in your lease. We try to negotiate the right to repair and deduct when management's being foolish. We try to work that in because we don't, we, we're not asking for free money because people get afraid of stuff like that. But we put like if, if management, has difficulty responding to maintenance requests, we have the right to, with our own resources, conduct maintenance and deduct the cost the landlord would have had to repair or something something of that language. And then the landlord will sign on to that. So when they're not fast enough to repair, we send our own maintenance guy. We're, we're cost effective. So when we send them the repair and deduct, it's not some crazy mm. price. So they tend to go away. I would have, should have known that, should have done that. <laughs> well, if, if you if you want the best leases on the planet, go look at Saunders. Saunders has these lease agreements that if the stock market drops 700 points, they don't have to pay rent for a month or two months or something like that. So <laughs> their, their legal team thought of everything. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I've heard you talk about that too. Wow, yeah, Saunders next level. Masterclass negotiation. But are, are, isn't Saunders struggling right now or no? Um. Well, they're they're losing money, Yes. Um, but they went public at $1.8 billion. You know I mean? Wow. So for the, the for the owner, it worked out just fine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so when are you going public, man? Uh, dude, I'm not this portfolio. Uh, this portfolio, once we break 300 doors, we're going to give Haley part ownership, but we're going to keep this one internal. 
And I'm going to use this portfolio as my pitch deck to do like a VC backed one that might go public, but that's you know later. Man, like one thing I love about you, man, you always have everything. You're, you have a farther vision from everything. Hey, once I hit 300 doors, we can do this. You know, I love that you, you're, you, man, you're laser focused. I can see why you books on that. There's books on that. There's a book called traction. Get a grip on your business. That's good. Um, traction. Now your visions always have to be flexible, right? You need like, it's like following the North star, right? You've got to have your North star concepts, like things that you're really working towards, but where you are compared to that vision will always change based on the wind and the weather and stuff. And you just have to stay flexible. There's stuff that you're reaching for right now with an arm's length. You should have a rigid plan to get to the next step, but you never, you need to have a loose plan to get to the next town, you know, that kind of thing. So, so like to run this, this operation, even though you're saying, okay, we're not to 300 units yet, it's still pretty massive and you got employees. What kind of system do you use to run all this? I mean, like a operating system, like a, like EOS or something like that. Well, we've got a lot of best practices and standard operating procedures within the company. Everything is human touch. We've got softwares that will help people do more stuff. We've got one software that's pretty central core. It's basically mixing uh, like a time clock system and a group text message system. And our housekeepers work through this thing called Connect Team. Um, and we use Google Business. And those are like the really only main business like softwares that we need. We don't like using uh, PMSs. So we use HostUp just to connect our calendars. We use Wheelhouse for pricing management. Um, but uh, everything is still highly human touch. We, we try to keep things as people driven as possible. No PMSs. No PMS. What the hell? Do you You're plan on using? Oh, go ahead. I, I mean, I don't really want to. I really don't want to. Um, if we might use, you know, we might use Hostly at one point. Um, I like their, I like the front end. It's really sales driven. And if we use the software, we need to know that the software is going to create um, incremental growth. So. So. Okay. Not be okay. You did say you're going to use Hostly. If if it, so, like when you plan on going to your direct bookings, you still won't use a PMS? And how would you plan on going about that? Well, as long as we can connect the calendars, that's really all that we need. You know, um, A lot of people automate themselves into a rigid position of failure where if something breaks, they don't know how to fix it, right? Yeah. You know, And even a, even an airplane, like, a, like a, these jet planes can land and like take off on their own, but they still have a pilot, right? A pilot still makes a lot of money to sit in that chair. So no matter how elegant your software, no matter how elegant, elegant your systems, you always need a human that knows everything to be watching the system. So that's why we grow the way that we grow. Because we ever have like dock in a software, the person who docks in the software knows more about the software than probably the person selling us the software. And that's that's where you want to be before you start onboarding stuff. So is that where you learn like like to, to actually build a real business to, you know, that from that books like traction or something like that to make like a CEO, managers, supervisors? I mean, how, how did you form, formulate all that? Well, I've read a lot of books. I started my first company in 2010, so it's been 12 years. But I mean, books like Traction are good or The Leadership Pipeline. A book called Multipliers is a great leadership book. Brain Steering is a good book on innovation. Um, uh, uh, the, like Even the basic books, like One Minute Manager, Who Moved My Cheese, those are really good books. Um, a lot, lot, a lot of uh, Dale Carnegie system books or John C. Maxwell are great. Haley loves John Maxwell, by the way. She reads Dale a lot Carnegie of Carnegie all day. I love it. <laughs> yeah that's right um you know so you know just there, i can't there's so many books that i've read and maybe out of every 10 books i've read i get one book worth of real information but um over time it's like the books and the experience 12 years um and you know i guess you just kind of learn the hard way or you get lucky and learn from someone else 
So how how would you like? Okay, your managerial style, right? Or you the you're the CEO, you're the boss, you're the president. How how are you able to um come to terms with the with the fact that you are what you well, you want to please people? You said you want you want that um what was it called adoration or the, you want oh, the pat in the back validation, and then but be a hard ass say hey motherfucker you keep fucking up you're gone or you stop fucking up I don't know how how do you how do you fight those two urges in you? Well, so the validation-seeking behavior tends to come out in the YouTube content. Um, my relationship with the business tends to be more like my one-on-one mentorship is pretty soft. You know, I've got a pretty soft hand, but I'm, I, I, I embody a, an authority position right away, which people don't ever really want to test that fence. Um, I tend to be more bad cop than Haley. Haley. Haley's very much a relationship-style manager, so she wants to make sure that everybody loves their job. And I'm the kind of person that's like, we need to make sure that we're performing because if we don't perform, we won't have a job. So Haley and I embody really good, different perspectives in how leadership should work. And we, we kind of have this good cop, bad cop, but I tend to embody um, the hard ass by nature, you know, more of a performance driven manager type. So it doesn't come out my leadership stuff. I don't need to prove to people who work for me that I'm good enough, you know, cause I rate the check. Um, yeah. It's really weird how that can actually have a duality where to the world, I'm like, guys, please believe in arbitrage. But the people who work for me, I'm like, Hey, you're slacking on your KPIs. <laughs> Speaking of Haley, one cool thing that you said in a video was um, Haley versus the VA when it comes to like a, getting, giving a guest a refund for something, right? You said something like if, it, you know, she, Haley got so good at the, you know, not, you know, winning every single uh, refund case, you know, through Airbnb or through whatever, um, that you had to, you had to make a position where there's a VA that actually goes against her to say, hey, maybe they do deserve kind of a refund that, uh, how, go ahead and tell us about that. That's hilarious. Yeah. So that, that position is actually called a guest experience manager. Um, it's very much like a product manager position in tech company where um, companies, is so good at defending themselves from claims that the guest, it's almost like our guests need to have a public defender in court, right? Somebody needs to be assigned to them to make sure that they're well-represented. And that's kind of the position because we get so good at shutting everything down. It doesn't matter if the guest was right or wrong. We're just good at shutting down because we're like, hey, Airbnb, screw you. Like, you know, we don't want to pay you anything because you're Airbnb, but somebody's got to look out for the guests. So we decided to do that. And there's been huge implications having somebody that kind of within the organization that's wanting to make sure that the guest is accommodated it it just it shoved our like it increased our five-star review percentage like exponentially just because guests felt heard they felt seen they felt understood to have that middleman liaison that always gave them the benefit of the doubt and always really listen even if we paid out zero more claims everybody else like felt heard and seen which increased our review count Mm, that was that was really cool, man. That was a that was a mind blowing thing that we're doing. Um, so so I guess that, that it kind of in our you know we we're up to like you know seventy units, but we have a we have a thing like some one of some you know we manage for other people too. So we have a most clients are hands off that they, they trust us. You know, go get just send me the checks. Everything's good, hunky dory. But then we have every now and then we have a client that's like, hey, they left a stain on this table that they charge them a thousand dollars. They left a, you know people like that. I'm like. So we we kind of have that set up in our own thing. We're we're fighting for the clients. We're like, listen, you can't go after these. These are the guests. These are the people that pay the bills. You know, you can't go after them for every little thing. You're gonna. It's it's bad for business. Yeah, it is. Yeah, well, it is. But it's bad for business when it comes to relationships, long game. If you want people, 
we go after guests for every little thing through Airbnb because they're not loyal to Airbnb. They're not loyal to Airbnb, let alone us, right? So if a guest does cause damage, I'm actually, I'm about to release a video on this on YouTube, by the way, how to actually pull this off. We can get paid on absolutely every little thing and there's no way that they can come back on us against us on our review. Our process for this is really, really good. And a guest that's going to break something and then be a dick about it, do you want that guest back in you, right? Mm -hmm. So a guest breaks something like, hey, you you stained four towels, X, Y, Z, something, and we have to set, we have to file a claim, you know, so Airbnb's insurance will cover it. If you don't want to pay it, just tell Airbnb that you can work it out with them. But in order for us to get paid for these towels, we have to invoke this claim with Airbnb. And if somebody's going to act like a child about the fact that they legitimately did, did damage and we still need to start a claim to get insurance to cover it, we don't want that person to come back anyway, right? So that can go into a little private note. Like we might have, we might have used Stayfy to grab their information and you know, like try to get people to come back directly. But that person, we're going to skip them. We're going to take them out of our emails. You know, <laughs> so people are so afraid of negative reviews or guests not coming back, but they stop to ask, "Do I want this guest back?" There you go. You know. And speaking of negative reviews, how important is it for you to be a super host? Not at all. Not at this. Not at this scale. Um, it's cool to have. It's cool to have. Sure. You should always try to have it because it still is an advantage, but the amount of things that you may have to do with 150 properties, the amount of sacrifices you have to make at 150 properties to keep Airbnb happy can cost way more money, big, big, like big picture than Superhost is worth because there are going to be inevitable situations at 150 properties where you'd have to shoot the moon to uh, get Airbnb to be happy, right? Um, and now that you're going Verbo, Expedia, Marriott, Homes and Villas, multi-channel, direct bookings, your mix on Airbnb is going to get lower and lower and lower. So being super host on Airbnb becomes less important, right? I think it's important to manage their algorithm as much as possible so you can get good placement. But outside of like appeasing the algorithm, I don't think the sacrifice is necessary for super host or anymore. Speaking of the algorithm, how, how many, you got any uh, hot tips on how to, how to tickle the algorithm a little? Well, yeah. Um, the first 30 days are the most important, right? A lot of people set up a listing and wait, like as they're still staging the thing, they'll set up a listing before it's ready. Don't do that. But set up, if you have a studio apartment, set up the listing three days before it's ready. If you have a three bedroom house, set up a listing 10 days before it's ready. Maximum, right? You can set up a listing and block it for 10 days if it's a three bedroom, but don't as live. You want it as full as possible, right? That first 30 days, if you're hundred percent occupied in the first 30 days, Airbnb will put you like at the very top of the algorithm. And phase two of Airbnb's algorithm, like you, it's like if you're a C student the first year of college, then the next three years of college, they're like, well, since you're a C student, the best you can be is B plus and the worst you can be is D minus, right? But you can't go any further. The algorithm starts to channel you into something, right? But then over the course of years, your long-term reviews start to matter and your long-term occupancy percentage, there's more hard data that will even further define your, your rank, right? So... Airbnb kind of has a shotgun blast the first 30 days and you start to define into a channel. So you really want to hit the algorithm hard in the first 30 days. Um, and that's probably the most important. And then the next most important thing is really booking conversion, right? Al algorithm impressions is cool, but booking conversion is next. And people's photos are the most important thing. And a lot of people don't understand what you can do with photos to stay in, like to, to keep your booking conversion high. Now, do you like for the first thing you mentioned, the first 30 days is important. Do you just have your price prices like super low just to yeah. fill it up hundred percent? Yeah. So I'll make a listing today for, for a place that's available tomorrow and I'll drop tomorrow's rate for a studio apartment to 35. 
Damn. And then, but the next day is like 45 or 50. Next day is like 65, 70. Next day, 70, 72, 75, 80, 82, 83, 85. And we have this crazy, like, like aggressive arc, but that gets us booked tomorrow right away, guaranteed. And we're doing it so that way for the next two years of this listing's life, we make an extra $150, $250 a month for the rest of the life of the property because our rankings better, you know? So mm. we're doing what we have to do for the first two weeks, but it has implications. How, how do you keep riffraff out for, you know, cheap rent something for 35 bucks a night? Well, so your risk is what that you're the one, you have one new listing and you make a listing that's available tomorrow for 35 bucks. And your one risk is that possibly your first guess is riffraff. Right. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're not doing 35 a night for the life of the property, right? You don't have like your exposure to riffraff in a way is like five days long. Right. Mm-hmm. And you do, you have the ability to like screen where they can only have positive reviews, only have a get like have a government ID, another blank, 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 you know? So you can actually be more stiff on your screening for the first couple of weeks because some good person's out there ready to book for 35 for the first night. Maybe book a five night stay. A lot of times we'll get like a five or 10 day stay for our first booking because the prices were so sweet. Then because we've got lead time, now that 10 day booking affords us lead time for the, 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 the days to come. Now we can be a little bit more loose on our requirements because we got the lead done. Um, but yeah, it's like your first and second booking might be the only ones really at risk. I love that. You're, you're playing the long-term game. Go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's like you need to have a really good first date with Airbnb on every new listing, right? You got to put out, man. Yep. Get them hooked. <laughs> and so and so one more thing I wanted to bring up because that's really cool too. How you talked about a, a dirty trick that you that you did to the algorithm. Uh could you go over that dirty trick, please? Wait, not to the algorithm. You're talking about my, my nasty trick in Austin. Nasty Austin. trick in Austin. Sorry, sorry. The nasty Okay. Trick. So what I did not a dirty trick, a nasty trick. Yeah, so we picked up eleven apartments that were the rents were about a thousand a month, and then we rent. We rented furniture. We did rent to own. Total staging cost, launch cost, we got into each unit for about $1,200 per unit. So we did rent to own. Normally it costs us like $5,500 per unit to set up, but because we did rent to own furniture, it only costs us $1,200 to activate each door. We got 10 weeks of rent for free on that. So now the return on investment for that property is over 1,000% ROI. Wow. It's our first rent to own furniture deal. Now, now question. Since you're doing rent to own, are you? since you got 10 weeks free, are you just... Boom, getting your money and then just paying off the furniture and everything else. No, no, because the rent to own, what you should do, what we're doing is it adds to our cash basis, right? Mm-hmm. If you do a deal with 10 weeks of rent for free, you're $1,200 out of pocket, then you generate $5,000, $7,000 before you have to pay your first month of rent. You can, you can actually take $5,000 and start three more doors before you pay the first month of rent on the next door, right? You can you you can magically generate cash with with rent to own furniture in ten weeks free. You can just grow like a fucking wildfire. We don't want to get too greedy. That's why we didn't go do it like that. But we're we're definitely thinking about it. I mean, it's tempting. It's so tempting. Just a leap for. So we we want to keep our rent to own mix down just in case something goes wrong because it's highly leveraged. But man, you can make cash appear out of nowhere with rent to own furniture. <laughs> I tell people. If you're going to arbitrage, do it the way he's doing it. Uh, hop into his course because it's the only way I suggest doing it because that that right there is fucking crazy. Damn. Yeah, that's riding the lightning. I still think that anybody who's new should pay out of pocket for their furniture for the first couple de- deals. Always focus on free rent. If we don't get at least eight weeks of free rent, we're not going to do a rent-to-own deal. I really want 10 weeks of free rent if we're going to do a rent-to-own deal because it's an increased cost on the furniture. We're going to pay 300% of the furniture cost by doing rent-to-own, right? Lifetime. 
if we get 10 weeks of rent for free on the front end, we get all this cash and lifetime value of money or the time value of money makes the 10 weeks of rent free right now worth the markup on the furniture on the back end. It's like a math equation. Wow. Can't beat that. It's mind blowing stuff. <laughs> Real quick, my, my wife, which she came to the the event that at, at your place too, uh, the, the Julie George shindig. She said, yes. "If you have any more of these Awas frescas, uh, l- let me know. I'll, I'll go back up the truck." I got two cases. Come swing through. Okay, <laughs> should be happy to hear that. <laughs> Man, dude, this has been a great show. We're so happy that we finally got to have you on the show. Um, work, you know, everybody knows where to find Sean. Everybody knows where to find Sean. Just, just type my name into Google and just ignore all the all the hate speech about the fact that I'm Serbian or whatever. So. Oh, there's there's hate speech out there. I'm just saying since I'm Serbian, there's probably people talking trash about Serbs. Oh, I was going to ask one of the questions is because you brought it up on on a and you did it very gently on one of your IGs uh, about a, a a hater saying, "Oh, look at you rich people out there frolicking and and Burning Man and and we can't afford to do that." I don't know. It was somebody hating on you for and for that and then co- complaining that you got fifty more units. How do you speak to haters? Um, you try to give them some love and you try to teach them where their perception is wrong if they're open minded to hear your perspective then cool if they're not open-minded you walk away focus on the people you can help don't for real don't waste your time talking to the downtrodden (laughs) and if if they're if they're not ready to grab your hand when you reach your hand out then i mean you you get you extend your hand once and then you just move on to the next person so that that one conversation might stick in their head for three or four years and they'll wake up one day go damn you know maybe Maybe, maybe I did do my job. We'll find out. Mm. Well, man, thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, you got any more questions for our man, Micah? Man, that is it, man. You absolutely killed it. Um, I as will say, if anyone is looking to do arbitrage, head over to Airbnb Automated because this is the only way to do it because his way of doing it is killing it. And, uh, yeah, man, Sean, thanks for coming on. I mean, it's been like five years. I think I tried to get you on in year three, and I think you were just rapidly growing your business at the time. So thanks yeah. for hopping on. And I was super nervous about doing podcasts. I didn't want to, like, wrap up in anybody else's brand at the time because, you know, I'm, I'm still learning, like, what the internet was as far as social media goes, yeah, as far yeah. as influencing goes. So. I just kind of kept it close to the chest, but it's good to be here. Definitely. Well, okay. brother, wish you more luck in the future and thank keep keep. I mean, he gives up tons of free information, guys. Just go check out his channel. It's all free. It's all fucking free. I'm sure he has courses too, but but I mean, you can you can start your business just by watching his videos. That's what, I mean, we've used so much of the, of your uh, of your tricks of the trade in our business. Thank you so much. And we've paid for stuff too. We've paid for some pricing things, and and it's really really helped us fill our calendars, man. So we appreciate all that you're doing for the community. I'm glad you you learned from me about how to use rule sets. Super important. Love rule sets. Yeah. <sighs> but go get that course, the rule set one. He killed it in that. Yeah. And the pricing course. Yes. Well, the pricing one is the rule sets one. That's rule set. Oh, that's, sorry. My bad. My bad. Yeah. That's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. It's, it was my favorite thing to teach. Right. Yeah. But yeah, man, thank you for coming on. And as Sean always says, see you on the other side. Hey, took him right out of my mouth. Good job. <laughs> Good, man. Thank you. Later, brother. Yeah. That was the arbitrage goat, Sean Rakizic. Man, Steve, how are you feeling after that one? That was cool, man. 
it was like it was surreal man i was a little nervous you know going into it because it's like it's the goat it's the guy that we've all been following for years now right and yeah. um and he has so much knowledge in this industry you ask him anything he has he has um something to say about it right and uh, and he's been making amazing videos for so many years like i said go check out uh, uh airbnb automated sean and his name it's on the thing Go go find Sean out there, and and you'll be able to. Yeah, I'll say it. Rakijic. There you go. I wrote it how I could spell it. So <laughs> spell it how I could. Whatever. I'm off. I'm a little bit off. I'm a foggy headed. You know, I'm a little under the weather. So it's it sucks that it happened on this episode, and we had a little technical glitches, but it's all gonna be worked out in post. But anyways, it was so amazing having him on. It was having a. a a celebrity in our world on our show, the biggest celebrity, if you think about it. And um, oh man, we are, you get so much information from him. I'd, I'd love to just pick his brain, just like even off, you know, off the podcast. But I mean, he has so much, he's probably forgotten more about STR than most people ever, ever know. For real, especially on the Airbnb side, he, he, he's been killing it for years. If you don't know, if you haven't been to his YouTube channel and you're in the arbitrage game, you're probably arbitraging wrong. But yeah, uh, definitely go check him out, man. Uh, I tried to get him on years ago. I think he was, yeah, he's, he, yeah, yes, he was saying like, yeah, he had, he was really watching his brand. So, yeah, man, definitely check him out. Um, good friend of ours, let us into his penthouse. Hell, cool dude. So, yeah, definitely go check him out. And uh, thank y'all for continuing to listen. And we've been able to bring on some cool guests, and we're gonna continue to bring on some more cool guests. Here's here's the what real quick. What I'm, I'm most impressed about how he's done all this. You know, he built it from the ground up, but he's hired people to to run it for him 100. percent and that takes a lot of um, trust in other people. You have this baby, you have this thing making you a lot of, you have this thing that made you rich and you're just going to hand over the keys to someone else and you're going to just do whatever, do whichever, whatever you want to do. If you want to go travel the world, you want to go Bernie man, you want to go whatever, you want to raise a family. Hey, it's not just for people that are single that are just going to want to run around the planet, right? You want to raise your family and, and then have someone else run the business for you. That takes a lot of uh, a courage, man, to to figure that out and trust other people to to do it all for you. And he's figured it out and he's um, teaching everybody else how to do it as well. Facts, man. I love it, man. And uh, yeah, that, that's one thing. I, he, he actually is the one who gave me the idea. Once I get to a certain number of doors, I am going to pass off the keys and we're just going to ride it out. You know, uh, yeah, uh, we're just going to ride it out after we pass off the keys. So I, I love that, you know, pass it off and enjoy your life, man. Go to burning, man. You know, <laughs> I'll look at it. <laughs> That's what's up, man. Where can people find us, Mike? Man, you can find us on Instagram, uh, TikTok. Y'all join the Facebook group. I and mean, real quick, y'all, I have been, I, I, I am off social media. Uh, that's why me a lot too. of people hit me up. Yeah. A lot of people have been hitting me up, inbox me where you at, where you at. Um, I'm off social media right now. I've been taking a real live hiatus, but I'm really taking it just for, just to really get on my hustle. Cause you guys know, once I get on my off social media and get in my hustle, I can just be focused. And uh, me, me and my mahogany are both off. You know, we're focusing on buying our real estate, the number of doors we need. We've traveled, went on a kind of a nice little uh, mindset um, mastermind. Really good stuff. So yeah, man. Uh, so you can still follow us on Instagram. Me and Steve's Instagrams, I think, are at the bottom. Uh, but yeah, follow us and hit the link tree. If you need anything from us, find us on all social media platforms. I uh, enjoy but you can still interact with the LLTTU crew on the Facebook page. They're always posting. So uh, yeah, thank y'all for continuing to follow us, listen to us. And uh, Steve, you have anything else? Keep living, letting and thriving, baby. Let's go. We just gave y'all the goat and we are out.
Peace. Later. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Live, Let, Thrive. Be sure to tune in next week for all the latest in the world of Airbnb and all that entails. Bye-bye.